Can you teach an old dog new tricks? Kerry Chernus says, under the right conditions, yes. Kerry is Emeritus Professor of Applied Psychology at Rutgers University. He is also co-chair of the Consortium for Research on Emotional Intelligence in Organisations, along with his colleague and friend, Daniel Goleman. Kerry's latest book is called Leading with Feeling, and he joins us today from the United States. Together with me, Marielle Daggle, and Genos International CEO, Dr. Ben Palmer, we discuss whether an established leader known for negative behaviours can ever truly develop emotional intelligence. Welcome to Emotional Intelligence at Work, brought to you by Genos International. Hi, Ben. Great to be back. Yes. Hi, Marie. It's fantastic to be here with you and with Kerry tonight, who uh, I've admired for many, many years and followed his work and indeed enjoyed interacting with him at the consortium. Thank you. Yes. It's always been good to have Ben come over and uh, join us for our meetings. I'm always amazed at uh, how uh, sharp he is after all that jet lag and time change. (laughs) I'm the EI outsider, I'm the newbie, although I have been reading your book, or shall I say I have read your book, and we're very excited to chat to you about whether you can teach an old dog new tricks. That is a big question. Um, Well, when it it comes to emotional intelligence, it is possible to do that, Uh, but it's it's not easy and it's not automatic. It, It depends a lot on, first of all, how motivated the person is. The person really needs to want to develop their emotional intelligence. They have to believe that emotions are really important. They aren't just noise. And they have to recognize that they would be more effective and happier um, if they could uh, develop some aspects of their own emotional intelligence. So recently, an Australian federal minister was ordered by our Prime Minister to undertake empathy training um, as a result of some very public bad behaviour. And it got me thinking, is being forced to take EI training, I know empathy is a part of EI, being forced to take it, does that create a good environment for change? Well, it's interesting. You know, usually um, it's not a good environment. But I'm reminded of an incident that uh, I was involved in several years ago. I was sitting in on an emotional intelligence training program at a large corporation here in the US. And uh, I noticed there was one guy in particular who was really trying hard. He was having a hard time in uh, a role play or something, but he was really engaged. He was really committed to doing it. And I talked to him after uh, during one of the breaks and I Asked them, you know, why why are you uh, taking the program? Uh, and what he said really surprised me. He said, "Well, I have been uh, accused of sexual harassment more than once, and my boss uh, told me that I have to take this training, uh, and if I don't, then I'm going to be fired. And you know, I have a, a wife, I have children." I've really got to, to get this right. I, you know, when these incidents have occurred, I wasn't even aware that I was, you know, uh, being offensive. Um, and, and that was an example, first of all, how someone who, who lacks some basic emotional intelligence skills really needs to, to develop those in order to avoid situations like sexual harassment. But also it was an example of how 
someone who wouldn't normally be motivated to do it got motivated because not because there was a carrot hanging over him, but because there was a stick. He realized he had to do this. But but normally, uh, you know, it, it does work better if the motivation comes from more positive sources. But the person really has to be committed. They really have to be willing to to, to do some hard work if the training is going to work. Mm, I would agree. I think uh, that forcing someone to go and do the training is perhaps not uh, necessarily the best method. But I think a very mature conversation with someone that says, you know, look, the job you're in requires good levels of empathy, self-awareness, um, the capacity to create a positive work environment for others. How well do you think you're doing at that? You know, um, would you like some, you know, professional assistance in that kind of area? Because ultimately, I think if uh, you can have that kind of mature conversation, this is Boster, their direct report, sort of, if you like, saying, um, here's an investment we're willing to make in you if you're willing to really give this a go. I, I found that kind of environment does work well for the individual who um, perhaps has the EI capacity, Kerry, but doesn't have the motivation quite just yet, if that makes sense. You're right. Yeah. So what factors would determine whether an established leader who has entrenched negative behaviours can improve through EI development? One of the leaders that uh, we interviewed for our book was a, a senior executive who had, had been very successful. He was very effective, very smart, very competent, a lot of experience in, in the job. And he had moved, um, he had actually been recruited by this company from another company because uh, he really stood out. But the culture was very different in the new company. He was used to a command and control. You know, if people aren't doing the job, you yell at them until they do. And that was not working well in this new environment. And um, the CEO asked his VP for human resources to work with this guy to see if he could bring him around. So he became essentially his coach. But this guy who, you know, we'll call Manny, uh, Manny wasn't going to have any of it. I mean, he'd been successful for 30 years. He knew he was good. The problem was everybody else. And in fact, the first time this guy went into his office, he said, Manny literally threw him out the door. Um, but this VP for human resources had a lot of emotional intelligence and he persevered. And, you know, he would chat with Manny whenever he could. He would, you know, um, uh, praise Manny whenever Manny, you know, showed some, you know, sparks of empathy and, and compassion. But what really turned it around was, they were talking one day and Manny said, you know, I don't, I don't think this is working for me. Um, I, I'm really looking forward to moving back to the Midwest, which is where you just come from. And it's not just the job. You know, I'm having all kinds of problems with uh, the, the mortgage on our new house. And, and so the VP for Human Resources said, well, you know, let, let me check and see if we can help you out with that. So he went to, you know, some of his people and they looked into it. And they were able to, to help Manny out with this very tangible sort of need that he had that wasn't even directly related to the job. And that was what really did it. You know, from then on, Manny really was open to what this VP for Human Resources was trying to do. And the VP for Human Resources tried to continue, you know, using that kind of approach that Ben was just modeling so well. Um, 
But now Manny was really open to it because this guy really went, uh, you know, the, the next level to help him with something that was really concrete and tangible. Mm. The other thing I would say in terms of motivating people to work on their emotional intelligence is a lot of people who, let's say, are, are quite average or low in emotional intelligence aren't just average and low at work. They're average and low socially, romantically with their kids. And so there's another kind of leverage there, if you like, of motivation, just to say this can help you in many aspects of your life yeah. as well. You know, I don't know about you, Kerry, but I get tickled pink when the leader, you know, sort of comes and says, oh, yeah, the team's performing better, which is great. But I really developed my relationship with my, you know, 17-year-old son or daughter or whatever. That, that's really where I think uh, the, uh, the reward of doing this kind of work comes from. Absolutely. And, and I've seen that happen a lot in, in training programs I've done. People will come up to me afterwards and say, you know, I, it, I'm not sure yet how, how much it'll help me on the job, but boy, I've been using it with my teenage son and it is really working well with him. How long would it take, if at all, for someone like this to truly gain and then effectively exercise AI? Well, you know, it certainly takes longer than, you know, one three-hour session it just can be useful in introducing the topic, but people are not going to start changing based on that. Uh, even an intensive weekend or a, a week-long retreat is usually not enough. But looking at the, the research on uh, the effectiveness of different training programs, we now know that programs that are as short as five or six weeks, uh, you know, 18 hours spread across several weeks can really start to show uh, change, again, in people who are very motivated and who are working in organizations where the culture uh, really supports the use of these AI skills. So it, it does take a while. It takes a lot of motivation and persistence, but in the right conditions, it, it can happen, uh, you know, within a, a couple of months or so. Yeah, I would echo that. I think uh, of all the stuff we've done, I find, you know, six to eight, two hour sessions, one a week, uh, not layering too many concepts upon concepts, really teaching, say, self-awareness first, self-management, empathy, capacity to positively influence others. I think if you work in that sort of systematic developmental way across the competencies, you can see really, really good effects in uh, six, seven, eight weeks. I think the latest meta-analytic research, Kerry, uh, the, the research of research, if you like, suggests that uh, on, on average, good programs are uh, improving emotional intelligence by about 17 percentile points. Does that ring a bell to you? I don't know if you've seen that study. Uh, I think it was in no, human resource no, management. No, I, please, please send that to me, Ben, if you get a chance. Um, but uh, again, I, I think these programs, really, particularly the effective ones, uh, can can be really, really useful. So it's, it's good to have the data. Meta-analyses are very good for that. In the case that a leader is going through EI training, mm -hmm. how likely is it that the team will accept the change in their leader or manager rather than be cynical of it? It's a really good question because that often occurs. You know, I'm sure in, in Manny's case, the example I gave a couple of minutes ago, uh, it took people a while to really believe that, you know, this was real. A couple of things. First of all, it's important in, in doing the coaching and the training that you really kind of inoculate uh, people so that they're 
prepared for skepticism and pessimism from their team. People are not going to believe it to begin with, but that's okay because if you're if you're able to persist and you continue, you know, you consistently use these these new skills, more and more people will will come around and believe. Well, you know, this really is uh, working. So, so those are the, the the two things I think that are important. Prepare people for that ahead of time, and then give them support. Provide them with support because they're not going to get it very much from their team necessarily to begin with. They need support from the coach or from, you know, the people they're going through the training with until the people they work with really start, you know, responding positively. Yeah. It really rings a bell for me. I think, uh, Kerry, in, in my experience, I say to people who are in systematic programs, you know, tell your staff what you've been learning, ask them mm -hmm. to help you. Um, in, in that development rather than hide it under the bush. I, I think it really relates to number eight of your nine steps in the book, uh, leading with feelings. In fact, seek out others for help in managing emotions yeah. and uh, help others develop their AI. I think leaders who are in programs, you know, shouldn't be shy of saying, hey, I'm learning how to do this and I'd really like you to support me in, in achieving that. I think that can work to remove some of that cynicism too, uh, Marie. But to Kerry's point too, it's the consistency that really develops trust around it. Yeah, that's a great insight, actually. Uh, is there anything formally an organisation could do to set the expectation with the team that change is coming? Or would you just let it happen organically? Yeah, the organisation uh, really plays uh, an important role. Um, we're starting to look now at uh, organisations that seem to be, quote unquote, emotionally intelligent. And what we're finding is that the people are uh, more ready to accept emotional intelligence, emotional intelligence training, uh, and, and uh, working with people who, who are getting that training, if it's being done throughout the organization, and particularly if it starts at the top. The organizations that we're identifying that are really models of this um, in just about every case, they start at the very top. The CEO and the top leadership team, they go through the training first. And then it sort of goes from, you know, from that to the mid-level managers. And then finally, uh, you know, to the shop floor or the, you know, the, the call center floor, wherever. Uh, by the time it gets to that level, people really believe it's real, that, that leaders can change. And uh, so that, that's something that, that organizations can do. The other thing that these um, emotionally intelligent organizations uh, are doing is that they don't rely just on training, uh, even extensive training. You find ways of infusing emotional intelligence in sort of other venues. A good example of that is in the annual performance review, where um, in many of these organizations, uh, those conversations that bosses have with their subordinates, it's really structured for them to spend a few minutes talking about emotional intelligence and discussing how the person is doing on those skills and what they would like their goals to be for the next year in terms of developing or maintaining those skills. That really creates the groundwork for emotional intelligence training and coaching to be accepted. Yeah, I think uh, leaders who really link 
uh, an EI development initiative to strategy and things like that again, and really make a good business case and and things like that, make it serious for the business. That that works very well. Of course, unlike when I first started working in this area 20 years ago, Kerry, you know, you didn't have the World Economic Forum saying emotional intelligence is one of the top 10 job skills. You didn't have the world of artificial intelligence and machine-led learning now taking over a lot of the thinking aspects of jobs. Um, and so those sorts of things, now that they've come into the fore, I think people get the need for emotional intelligence in business now much, much better than what they did a while back. The other remark that I wanted to make in, in terms of what we're talking about now, one of the uh, EI consortium meetings that we went to, uh, and Kerry will remember this well, we had David Dunning there. People who are listening may be quite familiar with the famous Dunning-Kruger effect. One of the takeaways, Kerry, of that for me, I think, is it really painted the importance of assessments in programs because not many people, to David's point, like to think of themselves as not being emotionally intelligent. And, you know, the, the reality of the situation is there's a fairly normal bell-shaped distribution of levels of emotional intelligence out there in the workplace. And I think assessments at the beginning of programs help people truly reflect properly on what they're doing well and what areas for EI development there are. And I think those feed nicely into that performance plan that you're talking about right? and, and help someone personalize learning for themselves to be able to say, well, actually my self-awareness is not too bad, but I'm being a bit too much of a John McEnroe in the office, for example, you know, it's my <laughs> emotional management skills I've got to work on, uh, that sort of thing. Yeah. What happens when someone says, no, I, I don't want to change? I mean, in your book, Kerry, you mention Eric Schmidt and how he was hired to effectively be a peacemaker and be the softer side to the Google founders. Is this approach the best approach to bringing EI into leadership in some cases? Yeah, in, in some cases, definitely. I, I think that um, very often it, it's easier to change roles and responsibilities than to, you know, keep trying to to change the individual to, to do something right. Another example from the book that you might remember is the president of this um, uh, wholesale food distributor company. He would go out every year and meet with their you know, most important customers to see how things were going and you know, renegotiate the contract. And always went very well, except for this one um, executive at another company. And this guy, really knew how to press the buttons of the, um, you know, the head of the uh, wholesale distributor. And no matter what he tried to do, this, this was a guy who, like all the leaders in our book, was very emotionally intelligent. But once he got in the room with this customer, this difficult customer, you know, it just all went out the door. And he would always come back kicking himself because he ended up with a really bad contract with, as far as his company was concerned. So he was talking to his um, his mentor and uh, another executive, uh, an older executive that, that he talked with periodically and said he was going to have to go out and meet with this customer again. And he wasn't looking forward to it. And the mentor said, well, why do you have to be the one to go out and do it? Why don't you send one of your people to, you know, see how things are going and negotiate the new contract? And maybe that'll work better. And so that's what he did. And sure enough, it was amazing. You know, this guy had been, you know, trying everything he could think of to, you know, handle this difficult customer better when all he had to do was have one of his executives go out and do it and boom, work much better. So I think that's another example of how very often just, you know, changing the role 
giving the role to someone else who has the emotional intelligence skills, perhaps that are, are better that, uh, in that situation, uh, makes a lot more sense than really trying to, to change the individual. Uh, an example that uh, many of the listeners can relate to, even if they're not in uh, a work situation, is what happens when your young child hits that toddler stage and, you know, wants to go to everything in the living room that is within reach that's valuable. And the really smart parents learn very quickly that rather than jumping up and down every minute to keep the kid from, you know, breaking Aunt Martha's uh, dish, you just put it out of reach and, you know, problem solved. So, you know, these examples are sort of uh, corporate leadership uh, analogs to the uh, working with toddlers. Yeah. The Google of Australia is this company called Alassian. You might have heard of them. Very famous Australian company. And uh, apparently, just the other day in one of our newspapers here, there was a bit of a write-up of their chiefs of staff, uh, a person named Amy Glancy. And apparently, Amy acts as a little bit of a sounding board for the two founders of the company, helping to smooth uh, little ripples out, I think is one of the comments that was made in the, in the paper. Kerry, this conversation reminds me of some of the work of Nicholas Shute, I think, who did some work on the success of relationships and looking at whether two couples in the relation, that, that both of them were emotionally intelligent, whether one was and one wasn't, whether both were unemotionally intelligent and how you know successful in terms of the longevity of the relationship. And anyway, as I remember uh, the findings of this research, Nicola was saying in her article that she found that the people where both people in the relationship were unemotionally intelligent had the shortest term yeah. relationships typically, uh, followed by people where one was and one wasn't, except where the person who didn't have emotional intelligence was willing to accept that and lean on the partner uh, for advice and input in situations that really called for it. And I think it's, you know, it's a nice uh, analogy to what we're talking about here, yeah. Your book outlines nine strategies of emotionally intelligent leaders, which makes it sound achievable or, dare I say, easy. What are the top three most common obstacles or challenges that leaders might face the first time they use them? The first one is it may not work. In, in fact, it, it probably is not going to work in every situation. Um, but that's, you know, if people expect that to be the case, then hopefully they won't discouraged and, you know, give up on everything. Um, and also recognizing that emotional intelligence is not a panacea. You can be very emotionally intelligent and, you know, still not, not reach your, your end results all the time. But, you know, it's sort of like um, in baseball, excuse me for not using a cricket example, but there's probably something analogous to it. Uh, in baseball, the batters go up and uh, even the, the best batters of all time, more often than not, will not get on base, right? I mean, if you, if you have a batting average of uh, 300 or better, you're one of the top batters uh, in the league. So, you know, think about that as being sort of indicative of life in general and certainly indicative of emotional intelligence. You can be an emotional intelligence uh, star and still a lot of the time, strike out or not get to first base. So recognize that. Don't, don't think that it's going to be a failure. A second uh, obstacle I think that, that people encounter in terms of, you know, when these failures occur is that it's very difficult to 
I mean, the strategies, one thing we, we found and, and that we, we tried to do in the book was to articulate strategies that are very clear, very simple to understand. And, you know, within a few minutes, people can start using them. People need to be aware that, you know, it takes time to get to the point where you can use these strategies naturally without even thinking about them. And even when, you, when you're using them a lot, when you're in a stressful situation, uh, it may all go out the door. You know, it's sort of like when you're on a, in, a, in a weight loss program and it's your birthday and you go out and you sort of cave in and have a hot fight Sunday. You know, it's sort of an analogous situation. At that point, there's a temptation to say, oh, you know, I fell off the wagon and to give up on the diet. So that's another obstacle, you know, not being able to use the strategies when you're in a really difficult situation. And the third obstacle, which, which we've already talked about, is being in an organization that doesn't reward the use of these strategies. We talk in the book in, uh, uh, I think, the last chapter, an ultimate chapter, what people can do when they're faced with that situation. Uh, sometimes they can work with other people to change the organization, to make it more supportive. In other situations, um, you may have to think about going to a, a different setting or maybe even a different part of the organization where it's rewarded more. Yeah. One of the big obstacles, I think, that really relates to that one that I've come across is organizations can be very supportive. They can be linked to the, the EI initiative to strategy. They can say, you know, we want to be an emotionally intelligent organization and, and so on. But one of the things they often fail to do is actually provide the time for leaders yeah. to be emotionally intelligent or to practice yeah. the development of it. You know, I, I still find in workplaces today that leaders are meant to be leading a team and yet seem to be so piled up with task themselves that uh, they're just in a task-oriented um, frame and context all the time. And uh, if there's anything I've learned in terms of developing emotional intelligence is that it takes time and you've got to be given time to have one-on-ones with your staff, to put yourself in their shoes, to draw on your fourth strategy, um, to sit back and think about how your own behavior is influencing others' emotions and creating certain emotional dynamics within the team, um, you know, reframing how you think about the situation, your sixth strategy. All those strategies are fantastic and you can get very habitual with them where you can almost drive the car without thinking about it. But like learning to drive a car, you do need that time to really hone your skill and, and practice it and, and get to that place where you can do it on autopilot. Yeah, that's a good analogy. I'd like to end on a question about one of your nine strategies. You talk about measuring the emotional climate of the team. What exactly does that mean and how is it done? Yeah, this, this was uh, really interesting. One of the basic, in fact, of the foundational ability of emotional intelligence is being able to accurately perceive one's own emotions and the emotions of other people. Um, and what we were finding with these outstanding leaders that, that we interviewed and studied was that they were monitoring the emotional climate in meetings, both you know, team meetings and also one-on-one, -on -one, not necessarily continuously, but very often. So when they walked into a meeting, they would immediately sort of uh, take a uh, 
uh, a measure of the emotional climate and adjust what was uh, happening immediately. And then they would use that information to uh, intervene in ways that could be very helpful. A really good example of that was the CEO of a company that had been going through some really difficult uh, times. And uh, her weekly meetings with her uh, top management team were almost always filled with more bad news. And then one week, it turned out that the numbers were really positive for the first time. So the, the COO gave the report, everybody you know, sort of nodded, and a couple of people smiled, but they immediately went on to the next item on the agenda. And she recognized this as an opportunity, a potentially missed opportunity to improve the emotional climate of the team. So she said, wait, you know, time out. Let's stop for a minute. Go back and think about what Jim just presented in terms of the numbers. This is fantastic news. And she was very exuberant and enthusiastic. And of course, another thing that, that we know from the research is that, emotional, is that emotions are contagious, and, and particularly when leaders uh, express an emotion. So she was very excited and positive, and she said, let's spend a couple of minutes to talk about why, you know, what we're doing right. And it completely turned around the climate in that particular meeting. And um, that's really an example of what we mean by monitoring the emotional climate and then jumping in when you see either a problem or sometimes an opportunity. Kerry, emotional climate's become a very interesting topic here in Australia. There's a very famous study that was done looking at the financial performance of organizations and their emotional climate, looking at organizations that performed really well financially, how often their staff felt certain emotions versus organizations that performed poorly. And I think uh, it also speaks to one of the misnomers, I think, about emotional intelligence. I think a lot of people sometimes sit back and think, are you guys, you know, with all this psychobabble around emotional intelligence trying to create utopia where people come in and they feel positive and valued and cared for and, and so on? And I think with emotional climate the, and emotional intelligence, the answer to that is no, that's not what we're doing at all. We're trying to help people intelligently respond to their emotions. Yeah. Um, and there's a kernel of truth in it that if you look at that paper on emotional climate and financial performance, it shows that even in high-performing organizations, people still feel the full range of emotions from Absolutely. anger to, to joy, um, from sadness to happiness and so on. But on average, they feel more pleasant emotions than unpleasant. So, you know, in terms of your emotional culture, one of the things that I encourage leaders to do is to step back and say, on average, are your people feeling valued, cared for, consulted, informed, understood? Do they feel empowered? Equally importantly, are they at times feeling annoyed, frustrated, stressed, worried? You know, that all emotions are important. It's uh, monitoring your climate and knowing what it is that's so important. Yep, exactly. Exactly. 